There are some who call me... Tim? The lights go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. That's right, you are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. I'm Tim Swartz, and with me tonight, of course, as always, is Mike Fox. Absolutely. Say, that's right, say, I was going to say, say hi. Say hi to the audience, Mike. Hi to the audience, Mike. <laughs> How are you, uh, It's an old joke, but it never yes. fails to amuse me. It's the audience. <laughs> Take my wife, well, please. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, one of the one of the oldest, at least. <laughs> the great Henny Youngman. Of course, nobody remembers who Henny Youngman is. Kind of like before the show, we were talking about something, and I did a quote from a Frank Zappa song, and then I, I realized that you were probably the only other person, you know, uh, in this general region east of the Mississippi who may still remember who Frank Zappa is. Um, People just well, don't know I, who he is anymore. I mean, I, 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 I hope that's not the case. I hope not. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, 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 just uh, I, of course. I mean, I was I was always a fan of uh, Frank Zappa since since I was a young kid. I mean, I yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, you know naturally the. Um, you know, watch out where that husky goes. Don't, don't you eat that yellow snow. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I mean, he was uh, he was a, he was a very original thinker. That was the thing that got me about him. He he warned about some things in terms of of uh, conspiracies and stuff. That oh yeah, that he was he was basically ahead of his time, and he also was a very talented musician no, and a very producer. Talented, a lot of people yeah. don't realize he produced other groups. Mm-hmm. Like I think he produced one of Graham Funk's last albums and mm-hmm. and some other stuff. I mean, he was just a really talented dude and and uh, one of a kind. And and people think, well, he's part of the counterculture. He's a hippie and all this. Well, yeah, he may have been part of that whole counterculture thing going on at the time, but he also was very pro military and pro uh, national defense and very very much against uh, socialism and communism. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. People don't realize that. They think, oh, he's just another commie, long-haired hippie. They yeah, don't know. long-haired hippie he was, Yeah, he was a true intellectual. I mean, he really was. He was uh, an amazing dude. So. Well, and, and you know, one of the uh, one of the other odd things that, you know, uh, maybe even fans of Frank Zappa may not realize, but he was a fan and very good friends with the Monkees. The group, the monkeys. Did you know that? No, I did not. How about that? Yes. See, there you go. There you go. Yes. That's he very even, cool. He even uh, uh, wrote uh, wrote some some of their music. You know, uh, kind of uh, uh, you know, like under uh, yeah, the, 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 under the surface. I can't think. Of, I can't. Right. I, I, can't I can't think of this. Uh, he collaborated with uh, some of the studio musicians. Yeah. That 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 worked with. Of course, you know, I mean, you know, the 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 monkeys actually did 
write uh, their own music and play their own instruments. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they all were, uh, especially Mike Nesmith, you know, Mike Nesmith, yeah. who later went on to, uh, to, to be a, uh, to become a video producer and was like one of the first ones to start producing, uh, music videos. Uh, at first for his own songs, um, he had a company called, gosh, what was it? It was like, uh, Pacific Corporation or something like that. And, um, you know, he got into, uh, uh, well, I mean, he was the original creator of MTV and all that. Uh, and Frank Zappa was, uh, was right there. I mean, you know, helping him along. And, uh, if you watch their movie, the monkey's movie, it's called Head. Right. Frank, Frank Zappa actually has a, uh, just a real quick walk in, uh, walk on roll in there. Right. <laughs> I haven't seen that since I was a kid. Oh yeah, like well, a teenager. Well, yeah. my 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 wife is a a big fan of the monkeys because uh, when she when she was a kid, they were showing the the old monkey show on like Saturday morning. So she got introduced uh, to them. Now you know she doesn't care for the movie Head. You know, it's just too it's 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 just too avant garde for her. But I, you know, I love it. You know, I mean, it's right. it's that that's 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 my kind of uh, weird ass filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking about a certain song that he had he had uh, written mm-hmm. and recorded, mm-hmm. and you know, it was very avant garde. You know, and, and <laughs> to this day, people would find that tr- tremendously offensive. But I'm pretty sure I actually heard that on the radio a couple of times when I was growing up. You well, know, people used to play things on the radio that they weren't, wouldn't dare play now. Yep, yep. Well, I mean, that's that's because there's like, what, one, two uh, corporations that own all the radio stations, you know, in the country now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the, F- the FCC also is really, really, uh, they're too sensitive these days, I think, so... Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you have you have all these uh, these watchdog groups, and you know, it's like, oh, what somebody think of the children? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the the heck with children. In well, my you know, opinion, you know, we cow well, down be... too much to the children. You know. Well, you know, they, yeah, I agree. <laughs> there are so many um, people who try to use the Bible to, and, you know, I'm a Christian, but there are people who just you, they they abuse the Bible to try to push their personal phobias and doubts and. Ignorance, and you know, I, I I think back to you know people say there's no bad words in the Bible. Uh, I uh, I beg to differ. <laughs> yeah. I, I recommend that you go read all kinds of cool stuff in the Bible, like kill everyone who pisseth against the wall. You know, right. things like that. I mean, it's full of stuff like that. And and uh, but you know, people are so hypocritical. So and well, it's not it's... just Christians. I mean, it, people are people. You know, non Christians. Everybody. Yeah. Just Everybody. the hypocrisy seems to be rampant these days. <laughs> so, uh, you know, people just don't enjoy life like they used to because they're so worried about offending or they're so offended. Yes. Yeah. One well, the, one or the other. Well, that's just it. You know, I think that it's, a, I, I think it's really a small minority of these people who, you know, like you said, get offended over, over everything. And then everybody else just, I think, um, has got to the point where they just look the other way and right. they're just like, eh, whatever, just, you know, yeah. you know, we, we don't care. Just do, you know, just do it just to shut these idiots up. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I'm sensing that there's, there's a backlash coming against this, uh, uh, against political correctness. And, you know, it's like only 15 years overdue um 
people are fed up with it. Political correctness is not a Christian thing. It's a actually it's a very secular. Uh, in fact, if anything, it's it's totally opposite of Christianity. But well, it's now, one of those well, things where it's like an artificial morality, mm-hmm. and everything people say, think, or do is going to be take. It could possibly give offense, and most of us, myself included, don't give a damn. We don't care. I'm, I'm tired mm-hmm. of hearing it. I'm tired of you whining and you're complaining. You know, if you're going to go out there and 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 you know deny reality and then get offended when somebody calls you on it that's your fault you know right, right. it's like this no no i think that well before before you you could that thought i just wanted to say now you know when we say you know when we're talking about political correctness you no know, we're not talking about you know like people who who you know uh, uh, call minority groups uh, right. derogatory names exactly. or you know or, or or things like that and say oh well you know i'm you know, it's it's being politically correct if you know if I can't call these people, you know these you know uh, which is not un- not the, the case. You know, there, that, there's right. not a, there's not an excuse for for being a jerk. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. That's uh, but, and I just wanted to make that point. But but the but here's the other thing too. You know, we all have freedom of speech, but freedom of speech. You know, you have a right to say what you want to, but then don't be surprised when somebody else says something back. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because they also have freedom of speech. But what gets me is there are some things that have gone so far overboard in terms of artificial morality, artificial protected groups, new one every day. You know, now we've got people saying you can't say Bruce Jenner's a man. Well, I'm sorry, Bruce Jenner's a man. He's a man. Genetically, the dude is a, is, a, is male. He always will be. You can't say that that uh, this woman. In uh, where is she at? Portland or someplace? Oregon? Wherever she is, this woman that was the head of the NAACP and claimed that she was black, but she actually is a blonde, fair-skinned girl who's pretending to be black because so, so that she could promote her own career. You know, but right. you can't bring that up because she's she feels like a black person. You know, if I were a black person, I would find that very offensive. Okay, mm. you know. Because she's well, I mean, and she she has two uh, uh, she has two brothers who are African American that were adopted, and and, I mean, they're just like uh, we just wish this would all just come out and get it over with. (laughs) He's like she's she's something's wrong here, and you know that's that's what political correctness leads to. That's the kind of madness that you get because. You know, this is a person who basically has used used the plight, and, they, and it is a plight, you know, over time, of, of black Americans who have gone through hard times. And mm-hmm. she's used this to promote herself and say that to me, but she's doing it in such a way that, that she's, she's using political correct, correctness. And to me, that, that shows that uh, political correctness has gone too far, and it's gone too far in about a thousand different ways. And uh, I think everybody's just fed up with it. We're fed up with people being offended all the time, taking offense, acting like a victim, calling people names if you don't agree with them. You know, if you're you're a thisophobe, a thataphobe, a bigot, a blah blah blah. Um, when actually it's usually the other way around. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, yeah it, it's gotten way out of hand. But uh, anyway, we have seriously. Well, you know. You, you know, you know, Mike. I am really offended by that statement. You know, so <laughs> I'm offended that you're offended. Yeah, that's right. Your offense offends me. <laughs> <laughs> and see, that's it. There it is. That's what it yeah, is. That's uh, it. That's yeah. right. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, how have you been this week? Um. Uh. Well. I've been okay, but I guess I haven't been as uh, as as good as you have been, luck wise. Uh, I, I I read I, I read uh, and, and then you told me that uh, you were the lucky winner of a certain item. 
Yeah, that was very cool. I, this uh, a few nights ago, about a week ago, I I was you know on Facebook checking some stuff out, and you know I'm big into the knife community and people who design and make knives and stuff like that. And uh, a very talented knife maker named Rob Seniscalci, who owns RSK or, or RS Knife Works, he uh, had a raffle, and at the last minute, I bought a chance in the raffle. In fact, maybe the last one or the second to the last chance. Mm-hmm. And I will not reveal my secret here. No, I'm just kidding. I, anyway, I bought a chance in the raffle. And, you know, I thought, what the heck? You know, I never enter stuff like this ever, ever. And sure enough, the next day I have won this knife. And the knife is a knife that he designed for himself. And I'm talking about this guy is like one of the best knife makers in the country. Um, maybe in the world now. He's a young dude, but he makes some incredible knives and bladed things, uh, hatchets, tomahawks, and uh, just really a modern style of, of knife making. And he had made this piece for himself. It carried it a little bit, and he had it at Blade Magazine. I mean, at Blade Magazine's convention called Blade in in Atlanta right. um, a week or two back, and it was one of his display pieces. And he, you know, it was one that was not for sale. Then he got home and decided, well, I'm going to raffle it. So we won't say how much it was worth, but uh, needless to say that uh, I bought one chance and a whole bunch of people bought, you know, three or four chances a piece. And I won it, you know, and I mean, I bought it the last minute too, very last minute. So I'm pretty stoked. I got it today and it was, uh, or not today, the other day, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful, beautiful knife. And, uh, it's just unbelievable. It's got, you know, it's a Damascus blade, um, with Damascus, uh, steel in the, uh, in the scales. It sees ADS Damascus blade, six inches, uh, hand rub satin finish. Damascus and carbon scales, and the sheath is also super heavy duty, uh, with multiple carry options, kind of like options, I mean, kind of like, you, you, like you can carry it, you know, sideways on your belt, in the back of your belt, or hanging, what's called a dangle, or, uh, or more tightly against your belt. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do with it, but the knife itself is just magnificent. And we'll just, I'll just say that I can never afford this knife. Really? Yeah. yeah that's all I'll say. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. It's really nice. And of course, I'm real grateful to him for, for having the raffle and he's just a great guy and sent me a really nice package and stuff. So yeah, I'm real, real happy about that. And, and, you know, thankful to the man upstairs and to, and to Rob too. Um, and this guy's work is, is incredible. So if you guys want to find somebody who can really make an incredible knife, check out Rob Seniscalci, RSK Knife Works, or RS Knife Works, and, uh, RSK Blades, RS Knife Works, and he can, he can really, really make some incredible stuff. Someday I hope to have one of his big Bowie knives, but, uh, as for right now, I'm, I'm super stoked because I've got this, this uh, really magnificent knife and, uh, um, it's just the perfect size for everyday carry. So, no, that's fan. That's that's. I mean, it's just really fantastic that I mean, out of all everybody who entered to to win this, that that you were able to. Um, you know, it, that that always fascinates me because I never am able to win anything. So. Same me either. <laughs> I don't, I don't win anything either. So this was really great, and and uh, you know, I I have to say that the guy's generosity, you know, because when he did the raffle, he he raffled it. His net total on the raffle was going to be less than, than what he could have got, probably about half what he could have got for the knife. And he mm. just wanted, he just wanted to give back. He wanted to, you know, do something that, that, uh, 
to return something to the community, the knife community, I guess. And uh, I'm glad he did. He's a generous dude and, and super talented as a knife maker and just a real artist, really. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty grateful to him and, and, uh, I'm glad, more than glad to uh, tell the world what a great knife maker he is. Hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's too bad though that, uh, uh, the case it came in didn't quite make it yeah <laughs> get a new piece of glass put in the case that's not a problem uh you know the the post awful uh apparently beat on the package with hampers and i i think that they've got like this distribution center somewhere this man by chimpanzees and they probably just you know throw them around and they and it's kind of like uh um uh chaos chaos theory they'll throw them around for a while throw the packages around and then eventually they'll get to where they're supposed to go um so you know if they would put, uh, like, I, I don't know. I, I think I've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just, it just, remi- it reminds me of a, uh, a cartoon I remember seeing years ago, probably in, in, in mag, mad magazine when I was a kid, where, uh, this guy had this package at the post office and he said, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the insides are pretty delicate. Uh, can you mark it fragile? And the post office, you know, worker says, yeah, sure, no problem, and turns around. And behind him is, like, this huge steel, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Stamp. Uh, Yeah, it's a huge steel stamp with the word fragile written on it. It looks like it weighs about 500 pounds. Right, right. You know, that was Don Martin. See, here we are showing our our age again. There you go, there you go, yeah. Uh, that guy was awesome. He was incredible. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I've had these experiences with the post office before. I mean, I I know it's a tough job. It really is. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to stay afloat and everything. And but man, they just got to quit breaking stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, I I got some very rare art prints from uh, from Europe one time. Uh, first, first the guy sent them, and they were lost, oh. lost by the post office, and they never showed up. Oh then he God. sent them again. And when he sent them the second time, they were just smashed and mangled. And they were like a big, <sighs> thick tube. And I opened it up, and it literally looked like they'd been taken out, run over by some kind of vehicle. They had tread marks on them, and then <sighs> rolled back up and put back inside the mangled tube. Oh, my God. Yeah. Where apparently <laughs> they had run over it with something, tore it open, probably dragged them all over the distribution center. Then they gathered them up, rolled them up, put them back in the tube, and taped it together and sent it off. Wow, that was about <laughs> that was probably about ten years ago. You know, it, it, it's things like that that obviously reflect badly on them. And then there are other people there who are trying their best to do their best job, the best job they can. You know, so I don't know. Well, it's, I mean, you know, it, it it does amaze me sometimes because I have gotten stuff in the mail that has been packaged so poorly, and they just come out. I mean, they're just pristine. You know, it's, it just looks like that uh, it was walked over from next door. And, uh, and then I have other things. I've gotten other things that have been wrapped in steel. And they they show up looking like, like you said, like somebody has run them over with a Mack truck. You know, yeah. and, then, and then stepped on them a couple of times just to, just to make sure everything was broken. You know, so I, I just have to wonder. So, and, you know, and I should, re- I should say that it's not just the post office. I mean, you know, no. some of the other delivery services too. You know, I've gotten, I've gotten stuff that uh, has you know, just, just, you know, uh, looks pristine, and then other things that uh, I, uh, I I swear they've been they've been dropped off of a cliff. Right. Well, <laughs> hey, you a, know, yeah. Go ahead. I had, I had another thing arrive not long ago from somebody, 
And this was a really nice thing that this guy had made for me. And, and it arrived. It was late, like really, really late. And when it finally arrived, it was in a plastic bag. It said USPS on it, like a Ziploc bag. Mm-hmm. And it said, sorry, your your package was damaged. And the the envelope was mangled, just mangled. And luckily, the thing inside of it was, was in good shape. It was still there, mm-hmm. intact and everything. But, you know, at least they did the courtesy then of, you know, trying to recover it, put it back together and put it in the, the plastic. But, yeah, I just I just have to say that uh, they may need a higher caliber of somebody working somewhere in the process because you, can, you don't just – if something's like really fragile and it's marked fragile, you don't go around beating it, banging it, and throwing it, you know? It, it's common sense. No, if it's marked fragile, you deliberately go and beat it and bang it. <laughs> well, you know that's 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 funny that you would say that because uh, there was one time I had the same thing. I got uh, I got something, and it was it was some papers that I had been expecting, and uh, the package had been you know ripped open, and it was you know, like you said, it was put like in a Ziploc bag. You know, with the notation, sorry, or your package had been, you know, uh, accidentally opened. and But they had been, the papers had been soaked in some kind of noxious fluid. Uh, I don't know, chemical of some kind. Uh, because, I mean, they, they reeked and, I mean, just, it smelled like hazardous waste. Right. I mean, there was, there was just no way. That you could, I mean, I don't know if something had, you know, broke, something else had broken open and spilled all over a bunch of other things, which is what I suspect. But I mean, you know, the, the, the condition that this stuff came in is like, why did they even bother trying to put it into another packaging? Because it was useless. I mean, I opened, you know, you opened it up and it was like, oh my God, what is that? <laughs> I just had to throw it all away because I was afraid. Man, that's, that's terrible. Touch, yeah, I was afraid to touch it. <laughs> So what was well, what was the, what was inside the package? Oh, it was it was some uh, uh, papers that uh, uh, Tim Beckley had sent me. Man, um, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it came from uh, it came from New Jersey, so I mean, you know, from New Jersey, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, there go all our New Jersey fans. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, heck, probably a lot of them who live there would be like, "Yep, I agree." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they're like, we have to live here. We know what you're talking about. <laughs> Came from the Pine Barrens. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, let's. Uh, uh, I think it's about time uh, we need to go ahead and um, go to our break here so we can bring in our guest. And I'm really excited. Uh, tonight, uh, our guest is Dr. John Brandenburg. Um, and, uh, you know, he's the, he's the author of uh, several very, very good books. Uh, Death on Mars, uh, Life and Death on Mars, I think, is, is one of his other ones. Um, he's a physicist, uh, and uh, he's, uh, uh, he's come up with a number of extremely uh, controversial theories uh, uh about mars uh mars mars's prehistoric history uh maybe it's uh, it, it's connection with uh planet earth as as well so you know it's just uh he's he's a very interesting guy and i'm just just so happy that we were able to get him on our show tonight yep sounds great man 
All right, well, let's go ahead and go to our break here. Uh, I'm Tim Swartz. You are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. When we come back from our break, we will have our guest, Dr. John Brandenburg. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Still begs for change Mama won't say his name We like to talk about him Every holiday My friends are moved away Music just ain't the same Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Conspiracy Journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange. We bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today. Some of this material may adversely affect you. Other pieces are meant to enlighten. Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to Mr. UFO8 at hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. M-R-U-F-O, the number 8, at hotmail.com. Mr. UFO8 at hotmail.com. Find out what they don't want you to know. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. 
Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz. Only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to The Outer Edge here on the PSN Radio Network. It is June 21st where I am. Actually, it's just now starting to be June 22nd. So I have joined Tim. I have time traveled forward to June 22nd. Um, and we That's are right. joined. That's right. I've been, I've, been in, I've been in Monday morning for a little while now. So. That's right. That's right. The longest so, day of the year. Oh, there's our guest. There uh, you go. Like day of the year. Oh, uh, yeah. So we're, we're joined now by, by John Brandenburg, and we have been sort of talking as we, before, before we brought him on about the various uh, mysteries he writes about our, our, our red neighbor, Mars. John, how are you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great, and I'm especially honored to be on your show. Thank you. Well, sure, thank you. Ahead. We yeah, we we really appreciate uh, you taking your time uh, for us uh, uh, tonight. Uh, I, I, Dr. Brandenburg, I wanted to ask you really quick now, um, and and when I say really quick, uh, this is this is <laughs> really a loaded question here, um, because uh, you know a lot of the things that uh, that you have been suggesting about Mars uh, naturally are are. Well, uh, to, uh, to to other scientists, they're controversial. Now, see, to, to those of us, uh, you know, on the outer edge, and our listeners, not maybe not so much controversial. Uh, no, controversial. No, guys are well prepared for this. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I just uh, in in preparing for this show, I ran across a uh, a, a blog that uh, I think was written last year, 2014. I think it was called Science Blog. Uh, and, and, and now you can refuse to comment on this, you know, oh, in, case sure. you, in case you didn't, you know, you don't want to stir up, uh, <laughs> you know, any, uh, oh, uh, yeah, well, the, uh, the, the I gave gentleman, as good as I got on that one science, on a couple of science blogs. Boy, I, well, I tell you something, the guy who wrote this blog, I mean, you know, he, I, I think he was a biologist uh-huh. and, oh my God, he just raked you over the coals. Hmm. I mean, you know, forget forget about you know uh, any Fortunately, type. Fortunately, the, the subject of my book is physics, not biology, for the most. Yeah, well, and, and that's and that's just it. I mean, he did not resort to saying, you know, I mean, to to, to bringing up scientific, you know, science theory or no. anything like that about what you're talking about. Oh no, I mean, he called you. He he basically just about called you everything, you know, except <laughs> you know, a, a human except being. Late for dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now, let me tell you something, guys. Anybody, any scientist who wants to make a big discovery has to have bra- a pair of brass ones. I'm sorry. Yep, that's uh, right. Milk toasts do not make big discoveries. Um, that's right. Because it's it takes. Cur- I I lectured a British scientist on this. They pub- they found organic matter. Uh, in uh, Mars meteorites for the first time. It's now been confirmed, of course. But they, uh, they, I said, well, you published that last year. Why didn't you find any more? He says, we did find more, but we're afraid to publish. 
And I said, mm. you know, I said, I quoted Lady Macbeth. I said, you, you, you got to screw your courage to the sticking point here. It takes courage <laughs> to discover things because there's That's always right. a reaction, always a negative reaction from people right. who, who want, who think in the box. And, uh, you know, they're going to be buried in that box. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, a lot of them, uh, Max Planck said, uh, science progresses mostly by funerals and retirements. He says, right. He says the old guard will fight to the last to defend their, um, you know, their their big discoveries from modification. And right, you have to wait till a bunch of people die and retire for new ideas to be accepted. And, well, we talk uh, about that, that on the show all yeah, the time. Yeah, th- this is Max Planck, Nobel Prize yeah. winner. He was discoverer of quantum mechanics, and not you exactly know. a bomb throwing radical himself. He was a very <laughs> right. conservative guy, and um, but. No, there was, it was obvious, there, there was biology on Mars, there still is, um, and, uh, you know, a, a faint remnant of it, uh, but Mars used to be a living planet with a, an ocean, an oxygen atmosphere, that's why it's red, by the way. You look in the Valus Marineris Canyons, and all those exposed sediments they're seeing on these rovers, they're all bright red. Hmm. That means the atmosphere had a lot of oxygen in the past on Mars when those sediments were laid down. Right. So um, it's obvious Mars had not just life on it, a biosphere like Earth. And then um, something happened to it. And it had, by the way, the ocean on Mars is on the youngest part of Mars. It's not the old part of Mars, which is the south. It's the young part of Mars where landscapes have so few craters on them, meaning they were wiped clean recently in geologic time. And the ocean sat on the northern plains of Mars for most of Mars' history. And um, Mars is a smaller planet than Earth. It's farther from the sun. So, uh, you know, it had to work harder to make a living environment like the Earth. It had a big CO2 greenhouse, probably spiked with methane also. Right. Um, and that made Earth-like temperatures and, um, um, you know, an atmosphere, um, temp- temperatures and pressures like Earth. Um, and then, uh, so this life on Mars was able to flourish because of this ocean, you know, where you have liquid water, you'll have life. In fact, I tell people, people say, oh, there can be water on Mars, but that doesn't mean there's life there. And I said, well, drink the water then. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Make me a liar. <laughs> <laughs> drink some of it. Yeah, there's bacteria on anything that can survive on Mars right now, by the way. We'd probably eat you, consider you a, a, a all-you-can-eat buffet. That's what you know, I figured, too. Uh, <laughs> anything that's there is probably, probably extremely hostile, and they're, they're probably microbes. Oh well, yeah. I mean, you even you find microbes like that on Earth. There are um, uh, these amoeba that live in the uh, geyser of uh, right. you know Yellowstone geyser, the Old Faithful, right. and they they eat brains for some reason. They get they love to eat human brain, and that's the same kind of uh, uh, their relatives live in these uh, irrigation ditches down in Florida. Every once in a while, you get somebody who'll just get a what looks like a nose infection, and it'll spread to their brain, they'll be dead in a few days because the amoeba goes into their brain and eats it. Why would uh, these bacteria want brain tissue? Well, nature uh, plays to win. I'm sorry. 
And yeah. by the way, that's the whole, um, that's the real um, moral to the story that we're finding on Mars, is that the universe is a tough neighborhood. Mm, right. It looks as though not only did Mars have life, but the ultimate adaptation of life to its environment, which is intelligence. We have found what looks like the remains of a dead civilization on Mars. It looks like it was primitive. It looks like it was like Bronze Age, Mayan, or early Egyptian. They built right. pyramids. They carved it. They didn't build highways. They apparently just used boats to get every place. We had to make an assessment of um, their technological level, and we noted there were two settlements, and there's no highway between them. Right. So they didn't even get to the Roman Empire stage where built they built highways all over the place. So um, then, apparently, there were two massive nuclear explosions on Mars, and they correlate with the two centers of the civilization that we found. One place is Cydonia Mensa, familiar to everyone because of the big giant face on Mars and the right. pyramid of Mars that sit right next to each other in Cydonia. Mm -hmm. And then there's another place called Galaxus Chaos, where there are actually two faces. This, by the way, these things were found in what's called the Emmet investigation, uh, started by Chuck Hoagland. Right. Oh, I'm sorry, Dick Hoagland. Dick Hoagland. Oh, it's Chuck Hoagland. Uh, Dick Hoagland, uh, who <laughs> started the, um, uh, got together a bunch of scientists and engineers to investigate what had been found by um, Vince DiPietro and um, Greg Molinar. We verified that when we went to the Case for Mars 2 conference and presented it. And the audience there was spellbound. Hmm. And wow. um, I went back to where we put up all of our things that we found on big poster boards, and I noticed one scientist just staring at them as if he was hypnotized. And he right. later became a very prominent scientist in um, present Mars exploration. So I know we had a deep effect on people. In fact, that's, that's where the Martian Ocean was discovered, was it during the Emmet investigation. It was discovered by me, and um, several Mars scientists told me later, they said, well, we don't know what to think about your face on Mars and the pyramid, but why don't you talk about the ocean and just, you know, concentrate on that. So I did, and uh, though they don't give me credit because of the site, I'm radioactive because of Cydonia, mm, the Martian right. Ocean has now become a well-established uh, scientific um, theory. Um, in fact, uh, it's it's considered just obvious now by most people that the northern right. part of Mars, and that is, of course, the youngest part of Mars. It has very few craters, and this means that the not only was that ocean on Mars, but it lasted most of Mars' geologic history. And that means right. that life lasted most of Mars' geologic history until... Someone else apparently came along, saw this fairly primitive civilization on Mars. I mean, that's the best model, the best interpretation of the facts we can get right now of the data. And they dropped two enormous hydrogen bombs onto Mars. Biggest, they were both as big as the Empire State Building. Mm. And they, wow. left, they had turned thousands of square miles of Martian surface into glass. They blew off the atmosphere, uh, made a big radio, two radioactive hot spots that are still there in the Mars data, uh, gamma ray data, 
and they fill right. the atmosphere full of radioactive uh, um, no, isotopes that are sig- that are weapon signature on Earth. In right. The only place you find in excess of xenon-129 on a planetary scale in the uh, solar system is on Mars and also on Earth. And the place you find it on Earth is that the part of the atmosphere that has changed since 1945 and is due to nuclear weapons testing and the production of plutonium, both of which require fast neutrons. Uh, Slow neutron reactions um, don't make xenon-129. So it wasn't natural nuclear reactors or any natural nuclear any nuclear power that we know of. It was this is a weapon signature signature of uh, nuclear weapons. And so that's found on Mars. Also, we have Mars rocks that were irradiated with neutrons, high-energy neutrons. They had, in order to duplicate it, they had to put Mars samples of rock in nuclear reactors to get the same effects. So these are, based on these evidences, uh, we can actually calculate the yield of the hydrogen bomb that went off. Right. By the way, it was a classic. Uh, all hydrogen bombs on in the modern arsenals are wrapped in uranium and thorium. Mm-hmm. They do that to boost the yield. It doubles the yield. Uh, the neutro- fast neutrons from the fusion reaction, right, which you know makes helium, uh, goes out. The neutron goes out. It's very energetic, and it actually hits uranium two thirty eight and thorium, which are normally inert, and it splits them. And it results in a big release of xenon-129, but also it doubles the yield and creates an enormous amount of fallout. So if you look at the two radioactive hotspots on Mars, then you'll see that using the prevailing winds, the prevailing winds on Mars are just like on Earth. They're run by the Coriolis effect. Just downwind is Cydonia Menza, and downwind of the second one is Galaxis Chaos, which is the highly poetic NASA name (laughs) that they gave the place after we had shown them that there were two faces, that there were two more faces like the face in Cydonia at this place. It was a place called Utopia Planum. And they named, they named, they renamed the place Galaxis Chaos. So somebody's, somebody's galaxy was thrown into chaos, apparently. (laughs) Right. Right. There's well, here, here, and I'm glad you're laughing because you got to have a sense of humor about this stuff. This is well, pretty grim, but it, it, it's pretty uh, fundamentally, you know, ground shaking. Not no pun yes. intended. Uh, oh when, yeah. When you, when you look at, uh, it's, we're living in a science fiction movie, you guys. Well, think about it. We Most talked about don't it. realize it. Sure. Well, we mentioned it before we brought you on, but you know, it, it's very reminiscent of, of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom. Uh, yes, his version of Mars. You know, if this was a civilization that had a lot of waterways at one point, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and then had been thrown into chaos, that's basically the world that he was describing, you know, after the event, of course, there wouldn't have really been anybody left, but, but the whole point here is that, you know, the assumption is made that somebody else did this, but you never know. I mean, even if, these people I, yeah, are, and I don't know. Uh, they, I, they may have, this, they may have done each other in. of the data I yeah. can make. It's yeah. possible they did it to themselves. Right. That, that, like, like that an our estimate of their technological level is wrong, that they're actually much more advanced than it appears. 
but well, I'll be the, honest with you. The, 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 the preponderance of evidence, and you have to act like Sherlock Holmes or something like this, right. you know, is, is that if somebody was going to blow themselves up, you'd expect to find a lot of smaller nuclear weapons impacts. Instead, yeah. it's two huge ones, and it looks like they could only be dropped from space. So right. it that's that's sort of why. So basically, you had Barsoom with uh, John Carter of Mars and uh, Princess uh, Deja Thoris happily living on Mars, and then the Daleks or the Borg or right. the Klingons, somebody. The Klingons would have enslaved them. The, 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 you know, the Daleks, would their thing cry was exterminate from Doctor Who. Right. This right. looks like the Daleks. They, they saw a foreign, a form of life uh, that they thought might be competition in the future ages and decided to destroy it. Wow. And unfortunately, well, there's people on Earth who've done things like that. That's true. And so this, this leads to a lot of questions. I mean, first of all, in order to hold an atmosphere, Mars would have had to have had a very powerful magnetic field, which very well could have been canceled out by a strong oh, EP right. Or um, and also um, Mars is smaller than Earth, so it the Earth still has a liquid iron core uh, right. turning around that makes magnetic fields, and um, but on Mars that geomagnetic in- engine may have run out of steam. Right. Uh, well, in fact, once you lose the atmosphere and ocean, you shed geologic heat a lot faster. So it may have may have cooled off because of this attack. Right, that makes perfect sense. And, and also, when you think about the, the ramifications of this, looking at the artifacts, and I'll say this: that I, you know, I, I told you this before that I have actually looked at a big debris field photo in high resolution from NASA that yes. was later re- removed. The photo was removed. I actually have, <laughs> have I actually have the file. I've had, I found, by the way, I've I found, had Mars scientists confirm yeah. to me that there is a Mars cover-up going on. Yeah, yeah. And I, I found, I went in in Photoshop, zoomed in, and I found all kinds of stuff. There is no way in hell that this stuff is coincidence, wind erosion. I mean, oh, I found per- perfectly machined objects that look like they were cast in metal sticking yes, out of the do. sand. Yes, they do. C- I've, I've C- seen C- some of those pictures. Uh, yeah, it's just impossible point. to explain uh, geologically. There's, well, actually, there's two really interesting objects that really got – well, actually, even more than that. But there's an object that's, that looks like a, uh, a curvilinear carving that's totally machined. There's no way it was formed by nature. There's another one that looks like a giant chunk of honeycomb cereal, perfectly symmetrical with the holes and the little dip all the way around. The oh, rim. oh, yeah. Uh, um, if you're, um, you're going to find massive monuments in Cydonia and Galaxus, yeah. you're going to find – just about everywhere you look. Well, this looks uh, like it's about the size of Mars, of the coastline of the old ocean, which is where the uh, rover is now. Right. You're going to find artifacts. Well, this looks uh, like it's archeo- about the size. Archaeology. This, this, I call it the honeycomb object, but it, it looks like it's about the size of a hubcap. Uh-huh. There's another. There's another piece that looks like uh, it, it. It's a. It looks like a piece of cast metal. I mean, it's very obviously cast. It's like. A, a, as part of a structure of something, mm-hmm. it's got it's got flanges, uh, parallel surfaces, and by flanges I mean it's got like that. What looks like the stoplight, the three the three no, bumps is, on sprouts. No, this is more oh, like something uh, else. Okay, 
it's almost looks like a plow or something. It's or a big piece of of machinery like that. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, it, there's no way. There is no way that this is just a rock. There's no way because these things are surrounded by rocks, and all the rocks look like rocks. Mars these is a objects, ghost town, basically. Yeah, it's basically like a junkyard. It is. Or something got destroyed, you know. Um, it's, it's probably what you would have if an area had been hit by a, a bomb. Yes. And, uh, yeah, it, it's really obvious. And uh, I'm just hoping, you know, that, that we can someday find out. But here's the thing about that. If they came right out and said there was a civilization on Mars, it may be ancestral in some way to our civilization. We want to go check it out. What they're going to do is they're going to unleash a space race like has never been seen for, ter- <laughs> yeah. for territory and be, for technology. Will, yeah. the, will the, there be steakhouses on Mars or uh, Chinese restaurants? Yeah, exactly. Actually, there'll be I both. Think, but well, uh, I'm thinking be a, be a, well, war's fault. They, over. Oh, oh that'll, that'll trigger a massive space race. Probably the Chinese and the Russians will join forces to try and beat us to Mars. And even though I, I'm constantly, people constantly say, are you sure about the technological, your assessment of the technological level on Mars? And I say, I wouldn't stake my life on it. <laughs> you know, there could be, there could be highly advanced technology buried in the ruins. Right. We wouldn't know it from, you know, we're taking pictures from space. All we see is big stuff and, you know, and they're, but if some of these things that you're seeing are, are artifacts from the rovers, then they obviously had a lot of mechanical in- implements. They were casting metal, and yep. uh, we don't. So we don't know the technological level. So if if I'm in charge of of this nation's defense, I would say we have to go to Mars first to access the ruins, just in case there's anything highly technological there that right. could change the balance of power on Earth. Well, and, well here, here's a question for you, Doctor Brandenburg. Yeah. We supposedly have not been back to the moon with with manned missions in a while. Right. Obviously, the moon is the place to go to set up a forward base of operations from no, which it, to it, explore It was an Mars. excellent staging area, and I was yeah. part of the Clementine mission to the moon, and uh, which was a Defense Department mission, apparently a reconnaissance right. mission. Right. Uh, and we found water at the poles of, of the moon. That means you can support large human populations on the moon and make rocket fuel on the moon right. uh, using that water. And therefore, um, you mar- uh, the moon is a perfect staging area for launching stuff deeper into space. Uh, however, as you can see, we can actually get to Mars pretty well just with a straight shot right now. Right. And uh, at least for early, the early expeditions will probably be just a straight shot. I, I joked with a friend of mine. Uh, he said, well, John, if, if the space race had been done logically, we would have built a space station and then gone to the moon. He said, instead, we did it, he said it backwards. And I said, well, based on that illogic <laughs> of human beings, we're probably going to go to Mars and then build a moon base. <laughs> Right. That, that, that doesn't make any Just sense. Which the, makes, which the, makes, the way the human race does things. Yeah. Well, I have to question if we really are not. Early bunch. What's that? I have to question if we are really not already on the moon and just keeping our mouths shut about it. Oh, um, I 
you know, I'm part of the group that was laid off when they did a big cutback at NASA. So uh, I think I think all the money went to Wall Street, actually. Right. <laughs> oh, that's that's sad if that was actually the case. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yes, they couldn't afford to keep us on the payroll anymore, but they could sure save Wall Street. That's pathetic. So, uh, that is. I, you know, I guess I would have to say, um, look, we went to the moon six times back in the, the 70s. Certainly we have the technology to do it. It's, it's a matter of money and will. Um, you know, <laughs> the Russians still have never, still never managed to get to the moon. They're really sore about that, by the way. <laughs> and the Chinese say they're going to go to the moon. So it's, uh, it's, it's still, uh, the, in fact, I heard, I heard a joke. I said, um, let's see, it goes, uh, there's only, uh, one nation that didn't that has gone to the moon and it didn't use metric. Exactly. I think that was uh, yeah. It was some. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a really good, really clever joke. I probably didn't say it right, but you got uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, yeah, we're gonna. Well, what this means is that we must become spacefaring. We don't have any choice. Right. We have to we have to uh, aspire to Star Trek. Uh, do you, by the end do you of think the that we have already century. What? Do you think we run the risk of or already have gotten the attention of whoever it was that took out Mars? Well, the the nice thing about the Mars thing is that it happened a long time ago. It was probably about a quarter of a billion years ago. So whoever did it is long gone, and uh, I hope it's my belief that cosmic karma has caught up with them <laughs> by now. There's a movie called Dark Star, mm-hmm. which features these fairly uh, brainless characters driving around the cosmos, dropping big hydrogen bombs on, on living planets, which they deem to be unstable. And uh, everybody should watch that movie. And uh, what happens is cosmic karma eventually catches up with them, and uh, they get nailed by their own one of their own bombs. And <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was John Carpenter's uh, John Carpenter's first film. movie. It's yeah, a, great, it was a great movie. I got a copy, and uh, wow. I, I I was amazed at how you know well the first place they drop a big hydrogen bomb is on a planet that looks like Mars. Hmm. Right. Right. And, uh, well, so, I guess you've seen, you've seen John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars, right? Oh, yeah, I saw Ghosts of Mars. That's, that's very interesting. Well, yeah, I say is. in my book uh, that if this stuff is confirmed, then we have to, we should have a memorial, uh, a day of mem- remembrance on Earth for the people of Mars who were wiped out, and that when we go to Mars, we should erect a monument to them, and that will placate the Ghosts of Mars. Hmm. Uh, I think, you know, it, human decency requires it. Um, but we must also remember that we don't want to end up like Mars ourselves. Right. And the, the, the sure way, the, there is no sure, there is no sure thing in the cosmos. The, mm. the best way to avoid the fate of Mars, because we've announced our presence to the whole universe by our radio signals, 
is to become spacefaring. We want Captain Kirk flying around with the Enterprise. And Lieutenant Uhura right is at his side. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> one of my teenage crushes. And um, so, uh, yeah, we have to have, we have to aspire to Star Trek as our future. And that will, there's no guarantees, but uh, whoever showed up at Mars and blew it up was, you know, They were just murderers. Mars, apparently, in my estimation, the difference between the technology of the people who blew up Mars and the people on Mars was pathetic. So they had no defenses. They had nothing. And uh, so whoever did that is not looking for a fight. They show up in the solar system, this solar system, and we got the Starship Enterprise or Battlestar Galactica, and the you know the Starfleet. Uh, They're going to just turn around and go home. They'll just say, this place is not worth the trouble. Uh, like all bullies, they, they're not looking for a real fight. They're looking for um, to prey on people. And uh, so that's, but that's how we have to become spacefaring now. And by the way, the other thing in my book I point out is that the rest of the universe is silent. It's called Fermi's Paradox. I was talking, uh, there's something out there that silences young, noisy um, civilizations like ourselves. It could be that they go quiet because uh, they're smart. <laughs> they don't want to announce their presence anymore, or they shift their uh, all of their communication goes to subspace that we can't pick up yet. Or it could be that somebody roves around in the cosmos and spots little young civilizations like ourselves and squelches them. That is what's called the Harrison scenario mm-hmm. in SETI. Gets right. rid of the competition. Absolutely. They're just, uh, their attitude is knit to make lice. Mm-hmm. By the way, that's an English phrase from uh, the suppression of Ireland. They right. massacred everybody. Um, it's a sad part of British and Irish history, but they, they killed everybody. Well, they also so had a saying. everybody babies because yeah. they said it's make lice. And so they. They also said little snakes grow into big snakes. Remember that? So. Oh, yeah, well, if you're a very ruthless um, bunch of intelligent people, uh, then uh, that's what you do. You find civilizations like ourselves and say these are noisy, primitive people. They're going to be a threat to us in the future. They'll become like Star Trek someday. Uh, we yeah. want to wipe them out now. And so they're they're basically okay. worried that we may colonize the universe and they won't be able to stop us. Well, if we re- if we reach uh, we're that point, obviously young and vigorous, and um, uh, older, more established uh, races would fear us. They'd fear our warlike tendencies, and uh, uh, they'd fear that they wouldn't be able to handle us after a while. They'll grow old and uh, gray, and um, we'll take over. I mean, I'm just, I'm just. We're we're talking about science fiction scenarios, but this is a science fiction scenario. Mm-hmm. Right. In fact, the first place the face on Mars appears in literature on Earth is in 1957 in the Kirby comic book. The title of it right. is Face on Mars. Uh, Dick Hoagland discovered this, and uh, it's on his website, the Enterprise website, so just look up uh, Kirby Comics Face on Mars, and P. 
people land on Mars, they find a giant face on Mars. This was made in 1957. The face on Mars was not discovered till 1976. But I remember reading that comic book as a child. Hmm. So all of the face, the face on Mars looked eerily familiar when I first heard about it. And so something in the human psyche picked this up before it actually could have, and that's many times. I mean, the Kirby comics were out on the edge science fiction at the time. Right. And many times science fiction has been prophetic, and in this case it was. And the face on Mars was found in 1967 by Kirby Comics. And when they invest, when the astronauts went inside, they found evidence that Mars had been destroyed by another race. The Martians had been wiped out by another race from outer space. So the whole scenario is actually in Kirby Comics it's from 1957. Right. And you never well, know one how... One of the most famous instances by this way was a, a novel called Futility, which featured a giant ship called the Titan running into an iceberg and sinking, and that was written 12 years before the Titanic sank. Right. And the dimensions of the ship are almost the same. The other, Another case of science fiction being prophetic was Jules Verne's Journey to the Moon. They launched right. from Florida. And the ship was made out of aluminum, just like the Apollo module, carried three people. And and the um, uh, its measurements are almost identical to the Apollo command module. Well, I'm, was it, I'm, wasn't it also wasn't it also named uh, the same, like the Columbian or the Columbia, rather than the Columbia? Yeah, I think I think it was called the Columbia. Uh, and uh, that they they have may, may have named it out of homage to uh, Jules Verne. <laughs> uh, he also wrote right. the uh, you know twenty thousand leagues under the sea, and they named the first nuclear submarine the Nautilus after uh, Captain Nemo's submarine as an act right. of homage. And um, so, but the Jules Verne was such a smart person, and he obviously was picking up the vibes of the universe when he wrote his novel about the trip to the moon. Right, and the same with uh, these other people. That's why I write. That's why I decided to write science fiction. Also, I write it under a pen name, by the way, Victor Norgard. Right. Uh, <laughs> people will say, "John, is this one of your science fiction books? Is this one of your science books?" And I said, "Check the author." <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Victor Norgard comes out at two two o'clock in the morning. That's when I do my best science fiction writing. <laughs> well, I was just looking at an I do image my science of... writing during the day. What's that? I was just looking at an image of of the. The face on Mars from e from from the from the ESA, yeah, uh, European Space Agency. By the way, uh, my book features all the most recent pictures with their frame numbers, so everyone right. can look them up and verify them. Also, the same with the pictures from Galaxis Chaos. Uh, I compare the Viking pictures and the, with their frame numbers and the ES, you know, the new pictures from the new probes, all with their frame numbers. Right. I, I wrote it so that anyone who wants to can verify every frame that I use. So do you think that these images have been altered to to downplay what is there or do you no, think No, no, I you know, well the the only case of shameless alteration of an image from Mars was uh Mike Malin's uh Malin Space Science Systems MISS M S S S S uh they uh they released a 
you know, no contrast enhanced um, distorted picture of the face on Mars taken from an oblique angle. And then they, you know, that's when they said they claimed it, they debunked it. Oh, I remember that one, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, well, and we ourselves were astonished. We thought, oh, well, I guess we did it wrong. Then we checked and we realized, oh, my God, they took it from an oblique angle and they fuzzed it up. You know, they didn't contrast enhance it. So we, we, we got the original frame, original data, Contrasted and Mike Car- Mark Carlotto, brilliant uh, image processing guy, did this. Oh my God! It verified everything we'd been saying. There were ornaments right. on the forehead of the helmet, and there were nostrils. There were nostrils in the nose, which yeah. hadn't been visible in the uh, Viking pictures. Um, and so it actually verified that it was an artifact of a dead civilization. But to this day. A lot of people still insist that uh, uh, they were mis- well, they were misinformed. That's MSSS. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know the the informed by mainland space science systems into thinking that this thing had been debunked. It hasn't been debunked at all. In fact, it, right. In fact, we know the first hint that something was wrong was when this one of the scientists from mainland space science systems, which was a contractor to JPL was basically their contractor, uh, <laughs> their, their hitman. And uh, they, uh, he was on CNN, and he kept saying, I told you it was nothing. We told you it was nothing. <laughs> you know, and he, he sounded, yeah. I mean, he was, he was perspiring, and he looked like he had just seen a ghost. And my, my buddy, uh, Vince DiPietro, and I both looked at this guy, and I thought, why isn't this guy happy? We realized, ah, so after that I went and took, sat up the rest of the night looking at the picture carefully and, you know, doing hand drawings of what I saw, and I realized, oh, my God, we were right. And they they are misrepresenting scientific results to the public. Sure they are. Well, why? Okay, okay, I I, want to ask, uh, why? Why do you think that they would do that? Because, I mean, you would think that if there was... uh, Go ahead, it, go ahead. Was, it was a catastrophe for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got, you got to remember, as I point out in the book, when you've got big science, and big science has an agenda, like for the planet Mars, and then somebody comes along and discovers something else, earth-shattering, they do their best. To, their first reaction is to squelch it. Right. Uh, by the way, in the book I discuss this. NASA apparently, when they formed NASA in the 60s, they had the Brookings Institution do a study for them. And by the way, even if a lot of scientists um, discounted the work of Lowell, upon which you know uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote Mark Barsoom, right? Most of the people in the government thought it was a plausible thing. And so, Lowell, the Lowell version of Mars with canals was still very much alive in the 60s. Apparently, NASA or the Brookings Institute, told NASA, expect to find remnants of a dead civilization on Mars. Expect it. And so they were expecting this all. NASA NASA officials, um, Mars science is too important to be left up to Mars scientists, basically. The adult supervision basically expected to find a dead civilization on Mars, and then we found it. 
And so NASA, believe it or not, NASA, with, written with big letters, not not JPL, which is just a contractor. Right. They have all along sought more data, and basically they regarded what we found as an inevitable development. So my own belief now is that there actually has been no cover-up by NASA. What you have is a desperate rear-guard action by some people at... Um, who are contractors to NASA who want to preserve their kind of fief on Mars. Oh, oh here, right. a classic quote. Uh, I worked When I worked on the Clementine, I worked with a guy who had retired from JPL, and he told me that the, guy, the attitude at upper management at JPL was this, that if we know if we find anything exciting on Mars, the astronauts will come with their big rockets and take Mars away from us. <laughs> yeah. Imagine yeah. having your big planet, your big sandbox taken away from you and given uh, to a bunch of cowboy booted uh, yeah. Texans from Houston <laughs> and they're damn astronauts. Well, well, you know, that's just it. The, the, uh, the, the, uh, the real explorers will actually come on the scene. Absolutely. Um, well, the, the, the but, real tension in NASA, by the way, is between Houston and Pasadena about Mars. That is right. the big game. Pasadena doesn't want to find if, if it finds a dead civilization on Mars, wants it to that to come out as as, as delayed as possible because they know that'll give that'll let Houston come and take Mars. Imagine right. if you're a manager at JPL, you don't want to lose Mars to to Houston. Oh my God! Well, honestly, I've had an That's encounter suitable. with a guy from JPL. I, I've told the story on the show before, but I was at Seagraph. I think it was 1995, and uh, I went by the JPL booth and had a long talk with the planetary scientist. I mean, he was a planetary scientist. I don't remember what yeah. his name was, but uh, we talked about a lot of things, and we talked about Mars. He said, "You know," I said, "What do you think about Mars?" And I talked. I started talking about various things like the Inca, the Incan city, and and the yeah. Sidonian plateau, the plateau, the 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 whole that whole plateau is covered in ruins, the DNM pyramid, yeah, and believe it or not. Believe it or not, he just said things like, "Well, that's that's all very interesting, you know. That's yeah, there's definitely something going on. We just have to find out what it is." And he was real circumspect, but he didn't. Deny oh yeah, it. yeah. We'll ta- but, take them take a five more probes. Well, We're not just that, but but the interesting part of my conversation was with 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 him was we we also discussed the recent at that time it had just happened the Shoemaker Levy comet that had smacked into to Jupiter. Yeah, and and we talked about that, and then I I basically said, "Well, I said." Uh, I said, well, what do you think about Planet X? And when I said that, I mean, this guy clammed up. His whole demeanor changed from friendly to... Oh, yeah. Well, I don't want to talk about that. And he, he, just looked, he just got cold. He looked at me, and he, this, he literally looked me right in the eye, and he said, well, if we knew that, we wouldn't call it Planet X, would we? And he turned around and walked away. Yeah, there are persistent rumors. There's some, you know, space. Yeah, you got to realize something, guys. Ever since the space age began, yeah. space has not he, only I'm, been a region of unknowns, but also secrets. Well, and, he acted like I had thrown a cup of coffee in his face. I mean, he he went from being really friendly and garrulous to just like, screw you, uh, I'm leaving. You know, he said, "Well, if we knew that, we wouldn't call it Planet X, would we?" And he turned around and no, away. we wouldn't call it Planet X, wouldn't we? They call it something else. They got their own name for it. Well, by the way, that's something they can't keep secret because, uh, you know, if there's a planet, yeah. 
a planet X on a big elliptical orbit that's going to come sweeping through the solar system at some point. Right. That's going to cause a lot of trouble, and they're going to have to uh, have a big mobilization to deal with that. And right. they can't keep that. I, I, one of the reasons I write science fiction is to explore scenarios. I wrote a science fiction novel called Asteroid 20-2012 Sepulveda. It's written under my uh, pen name, Victor Norgard. And I right. tried to, as realistically as possible, explore what would happen if they found a large asteroid on a collision course with Earth with only one-year warning, which is, by the way, about all the warning we would get because they they can't really predict things very well out past a year. And uh, so in the novel, they <laughs> the first thing the government does is <laughs> clam up about it. And this one blog, in fact, I have with one blogger, complete with a beard and a ponytail, he's an astronomical <laughs> blogger, and he's watching the asteroid with his own telescope and charting its course, and he keeps publishing this on his net. Well, geez, it looks like it's going to pass really, really close to Earth. The government people show up and tell him to quit talking about it. <laughs> and he says, why you, and he's finally, his name is Duncan, he says, he says uh, to the says, colonel in this, in this uh, secret police outfit, he says, Colonel, why do you want me to not talk about this asteroid? Just tell me why. And the colonel says, because we told you not to, and we asked you politely. And he says, <laughs> he says, and if you don't quit talking about it, Duncan, we're going to have to arrest you. And, <laughs> and send you to extended stay America. Oh. And, and, and uh, this guy Duncan says, what are you going to arrest me for? And the guy, colonel says, for disturbing the peace. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's so many anomalies on Mars that... For disturbing, you can be arrested for disturbing the peace. Uh, uh, and for talking Mars about Planet X or before the government wants to talk about it. And well, what happened in the novel, by the way, these two uh, nervy news anchors named Jade and Blondie, those are their nicknames, they show up at JPL, and one of them, this blonde, just walks up to the scientist at JPL and says, the asteroid is supposed to pass near the Earth three months from now. It's actually going to hit the Earth, right? And the <laughs> scientist just says, yeah, you're right. <laughs> 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 and that, by the way, is so many times big, a pair of big blue eyes have asked me a direct question out of the blue, and I have just answered it. And right. cause all sorts of trouble. You know, I've spilled right. the beans so many times to various uh, sweet faces. Uh, well, I've been married twice. So <laughs> 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 that's what happens in the novel is they find they they get the scoop. The magic beans are spilled, as they say. Right. And uh, well, so anyway, but the, so but anyway, in the in the novel, the government, after stumbling over its own shoelaces many times, finally does manage to save the world with the help of a bunch of brilliant scientists. And, uh, well, uh, so. when you look at, at what's on Mars, I mean, that is enough for a cover-up for national security in some circles, I'm sure. I'm sure that they would... Oh, really yes, and I, I think that, it was for a while. You know what yeah. I think now? I think they have decided to let this come out. For one thing, um, you know, I worked closely with the government. I used to have various clearances. Nothing about this, by the way. But... Um, I basically showed them the evidence, some of the people I used to work with, evidence for the nuclear explosions, and they agreed with me. They were nuclear weapons experts, and they said, yeah, you're right. And, of course, they can't be quoted publicly, but 
basically we reported this to the U.S. government when we found it. Right. And they did not look like they, if they knew about it, they did not betray any trace of that. Hmm. Uh, but I suspect some people knew from the moment when they touched down on uh, on Mars uh, in 1976. For one thing, they already had the face of Mars picture by then, and um, they came back and took a second picture uh, that summer. By the summer of 1976, I think the U.S. government at its highest levels knew about this because they, they knew the face on Mars was there, the pyramid, and they also sampled the Martian atmosphere and they found all of Xenon-129, and that's a weapon signature. And right. so they all they had to do was sit around a table and put two and two together, and they... But I think, and I'm, and by the way, that was in 1976. That's, gosh, almost 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. So right. I think they have finally said, okay, this has to come out. So they're letting it come out. I mean, I've gone to several conferences now and presented the nuclear explosion data. No one has contradicted me. Um, if, if the government doesn't like what you publish, they, they let you know really quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, well, you know, they they, uh, they they take out hit pieces on you, you know, in the blogs and stuff like this. None of that has happened. So I, I think what has happened is the government has decided this has to come out because we have to become spacefaring. And the only way they can do that is if Congress votes for a big space military budget and a mission to Mars. And right. That's what we have to do. So it hit this, so this has to come out. So it's going to come out. And, uh, I mean, the book has already been out. Uh, I've gotten good reviews for the book. I've been to conferences, scientific conferences. The last one was the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference. I gave a presentation on this. No one disagreed with me. In fact, one scientist finally, just after talking with me for a while, said, well, did they do it to themselves or did somebody else do it? That was his big wow. question. And so well, that's they, a big question. It's a big question, and um, I said, you know, I gave the stock answer, I don't know. It looks as though somebody else did it to them. That's all we can say. And this also means the U.S. government has to get to Mars, has to get people that boots on the ground on Mars to go through the rulings to make sure there's no advanced technology there because we can't allow findings on Mars to change the balance of power on Earth. Right, exactly. I've, That's I've, probably I've a lot of learning up. Chinese eventually, but I don't want yeah. to have to be forced it. Okay. Right. I think that's a big part of what's been going <laughs> I on. I like Chinese I food like once a week, but not every day. <laughs> not, not all the time. That's right. And, and you know, uh, another and thing. If you, want, if you want to let the, if if you can say, oh, this is nothing. This is nothing. Boy, the Russians and the Chinese, they've got my book already. They've read it. They've checked all the data. They know what it says. Right. And they're going to Mars as quick as they can. Well, let me ask you this. There there are signs there to me that indicate that maybe they were totally primitive. I mean, you've got what they look like. We don't know. We don't know their technological level. Well, there there are things there, the so-called tunnels, which look like they're almost crystal or glass. Or they, they for sure have a substructure that looks yeah, like well, it's, it's you know, arches. I remember we're, there we're interpreting pictures. It looks like glass tunnels. Um, 
it could be some weird kind of. By the way, that is in the area where the nuclear blast went off, so it could oh, okay. be nuclear glass. Nuclear. It's called trinitite. Right. Was formed with the first nuclear blast in uh, New Mexico at Alamogordo, and uh, every time you test a nuclear weapon, you form this. You, you glassify the soil. At least you set it off above ground. So those those glass tunnel looking things are in the area where the blast went off. Probably, it probably went off at high altitude. Um, by the way, the, the, the bombs, one of the things about the two blast areas on Mars, they don't have any craters in them. There's no crater. And there's no crater at Hiroshima and Nagasaki either because when you want to destroy civilian structures, you set off the nuclear weapon at high altitude. It, it, magnifies, it amplifies the blast effect hmm. right. over a wide area. Uh, and, that, and it leaves no crater. It just leaves a kind of burn mark. So that and may be what those glass tubes are. They're, they're basically scorch marks. It, it could be. Um, they're very interesting looking. Um, it's one of these things where you're looking at a picture, and you're trying uh, a two-dimensional picture, and you're trying to reconstruct what is the three-dimensional object I'm looking at, and it's very—they're very bizarre looking. I, I just agree, they're very bizarre looking, and just by coincidence or not coincidence, they happen to be in the same area where the nuclear blast went off. Right. So it's uh, it's it's very strange. Um, uh, it'll it'll be really interesting to see what the real facts are when people are on the ground and and this is thoroughly investigated you can kind of understand why the government would why if, even if the government knew this in 1976 for one thing the government was expecting to find this because of Lowell right and uh, uh, Warner von Braun commented he said the when he you know somebody who was really wired into the space race he said the first, some of the first astronauts to Mars should be our archaeologists. He's quoted as right. saying that. And yeah, that's a good point. So he, the U.S. government expected this. Then right. they found it. He found the Xenon 129 weapon signature, which was well known to be a weapon signature. Um, in fact, they only published the atmospheric data from Earth after Viking. Hmm. Once they found the Xenon-129 spike on Mars, they published the fact that that spike existed in Earth's atmosphere shortly afterwards. So they kind of prepped. They've kind of let this kind of uh, thing slowly evolve. I mean, we, as I just point out in the book, Vince DiPietro and myself were under government surveillance for a long time. But they never told us to stop investigating. They just wanted us to know that we were being watched. But we never got any interference from the government to um, publishing our work. And so finally everybody knows about Everyone knows about this stuff. Right. And so unless they're incredibly gullible, they must know that the government doesn't always tell the truth about these things. It, well, it, do you it, think it's possible that the Martian culture was at the verge of really going into space? I mean, I look at uh, at, at Phobos, which looks very strange and suspicious, yes. 
And, you know, if they had already moved to Phobos and were, and were mining or, or trying to create a base there or something, could that be what kind of, uh, tip somebody uh, off that? It's, that, it's very possible. Well, uh, probably if they'd achieved some level of technology or they were making radio signals. I mean, we've flooded in the, 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 the rest of the universe is as silent as a cemetery out there. If, if there was somebody like us, you know, making all the radio noise we make, we'd be able to detect them from like a hundred light years. Right. Instead, we get silence. We point our big radio telescopes every place, the very large array down in New Mexico. We don't pick up anything suggesting um, an intelligent civilization. Now, recently they picked up a sequence of numbers. Right. And I'm not surprised. They've probably known about that for a while. They decided maybe to let it go, let it come out. Once again, they're trying. This is, by the way, us people in the Mars Battalion. We call ourselves the Mars Explorers. We call this the Dance of the Seven Veils. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where the government slowly, slowly fesses up. Said yes, yes, yes. We uh, we knew about this stuff, or we suspected it. You know. You should call. Why don't you just call it the striptease? <laughs> it is a striptease, and it, but, uh, the Dance of Seven yeah. Veils is a more scholarly and. Uh-huh. dignified way to, <laughs> and, but, and of course you know, it's, we call it that with tongue in cheek we know it's a striptease so anyway the government yeah. is slowly slowly fessing up that it knows we're not alone in the universe and, well, I, I, so, I and, think and by, by the way it, no scientist believes no I don't know of any scientist who believes we're alone in the universe and, or believes that we're the only people to develop space travel so uh, right. everybody knows this now and so apparently the U.S. government expected it, they found it, and they've let it, they've basically let it come out. They've let the scientific, instead of letting the legal process run its course, they've let the scientific process run its course. Now, this doesn't mean some scientists who have not been guarding their sandbox, the giant sandbox <laughs> that is Mars, with their teeth. Uh, one scientist showed up at our, when we showed the, the, the new face pictures on Mars, showed, confirmed the nostrils on the nose and the ornaments on the helmet. This right. one scientist from JPL showed up and threatened Vinta Pizarro with his fists. And I, wow. I stepped in between. I mean, Vince just was standing there. The guy starts screaming, this guy starts screaming at him. And Vince asked him, you know, why is the parameters on this picture so weird? You know, you know, how come it wasn't contrast? And the guy started, Are you calling me a liar? I'll deck you, by God. And Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, this is at a scientific meeting. Oh, that's hilarious. And it's all these gray-haired academics. This guy had a gray beard. And, you know, anyway, it's it was crazy. I mean, everybody turned around. And they couldn't believe it. And this guy starts screaming at Vince DiPietro. He yells, "Are you calling me a liar? I'll deck you by God!" And so I, I stepped in between them. And the guy ran into me, trying to get to Vince. Vince just stood there, and uh, <laughs> I said, "I, you know, I said, I said, will you calm down, Mister? Calm down, sir. Here, come look at this stuff. This interesting stuff." And <laughs> but, and 
the Petro was was mad at me. Like, he said, you should have let him hit me. And I could have sued him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would have really brought some stuff out. It's okay. It's, it, you know, it, everybody knows this happened. I mean, there were probably 100 right. people standing around watching this. Mm. And of course, then they all start, then they all got this look of oh I might just I know nothing I see nothing kind of Sergeant right. Schultz look afterwards. <laughs> yeah. That's the way a lot but a lot of scientists are like that. I'm sorry they just they just all they care about is measuring their own little thing and and that's right. the big picture. They figure that's above their pay grade. Well, but before before we go to break, it's just about time for our break. But before we go oh, to break, sure. I wanted to ask you this. Um, By the way, great question. The, the, Thank you. Sure. The, the radio wave thing, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that radio may be a very primitive form of communication for an early civilization, meaning us yeah, and others like be. us. So, so it may only last for a very brief, like a century, okay, a century yeah, and a half. Yeah, maybe so. And then they discover something like, you know, communicating through gravitons or something, something out there right. that we can't even do yet, which actually is actually probably going to be feasible. All, everything that, you're saying is very much yeah. true. So the reason we're getting silence back is because we're just not listening with the right equipment on the right don't channel. Have the right ears on. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, but I'll I'll tell you one thing though. I'm an electromagnetics. I'm an expert in electromagnetics. Right. Uh, electromagnetism and um, I'm a plasma physicist by training. I, I trained working on thermonuclear fusion. You know, uh, controlled right. thermonuclear fusion. And electromagnetism is pretty important in the universe, right? So I'm just um, I'm just saying they may use a faster form of communication. That, that, that's that's very true, um, yeah. and and we have yet to tap into that. Uh, so yes, that could be that is that is. Many other scientists have said that that is the reason for Fermi's paradox is that Fermi's paradox. And uh, I know we're getting ready for break, but uh, Fermi's paradox is basically that the universe looks very fertile. I mean, we know now that every star has planets. That's, but by the way, that's what we know now. Every star has planets, except for a few oddballs, and uh, that probably ate their planets somehow. But most of the stars have planets, just like the solar system. And um, then we also know the universe is very fertile. It's full of water and all of the chemicals needed for life, they're very abundant. And yet, so we would expect uh, a lot of life out in the universe, and it would be noisy and rather random like we are. Fermi was just, he assumed there were other planets out there. He just said, you know, the universe looks pretty, like a pretty nice place for life, and the we should be fairly typical. So then he says, where the hell are they? Where are the other people who were supposed to be like us? I mean, he had just gone through World War II, and he was working on a hydrogen bomb. This guy had seen everything. Nothing. There, there was. He wasn't. He was an out-of-the-box thinker. For him, there was no box. And he asked this question, and he asked it of Edward Teller, whom he's sitting at a lunch counter with in the in the cafeteria. So. Uh, and no one has ever really answered it. Hmm. Why is the universe so quiet? Yeah, so, well, that's probably why. Yeah, we could contemplate that, I guess, while we're while we're taking a brief uh, commercial break. Oh, very good. That's a good so, time to uh, go to break. Everybody, think about sure. that. Why is it yeah, so right. quiet out there? 
Right. Two We're going to go five. quiet here for a second or two or <laughs> ten or thirty or fifty, and we'll be we'll be no back in a few minutes. Paradox. That's right. So everybody, stay tuned, and we'll be right back with Dr. Brandenburg here on the Outer Edge. team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology preventative maintenance and networking support hardware and custom built computers let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly monthly or annual rates to fit anyone's budget call key information solutions now 954-973-3374 That's 954-973-3374 Or visit keyinformation.com Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress and the Ad Council. We're rewarding you for something you already do, listening to us. It's Radio Loyalty, and it's an easy way for you to get free stuff. All you do is sign up. Go ahead and click the banner now. You'll learn points as you listen, points you can trade in for great products and services in the Radio Loyalty store. You can earn even more points when you share your favorite station with friends on Facebook and Twitter. Radio Loyalty, it's free to sign up, so click the banner to join now.
Welcome back once again to The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz, and tonight we are talking with Dr. John Brandenburg. So, uh, Dr. Brandenburg, I wanted to ask you, um, I, I seem to remember hearing a story um, when you were given a presentation, uh, and I think it was uh, a scientist, or was it NASA, NASA personnel or something like that? I'm not, I'm not positive. You, you can correct me on this. Sure. And and it, the presentation was dealing with uh, possible uh, fossil organisms in uh, Martian meteorites that were found uh, uh, in Antarctica, I think is where it was, yeah. or, or, the, or the Arctic. And uh, one of them got extremely angry with you for for reasons that uh, <laughs> doesn't. It seems to be funny to, uh, coming from a scientist. Oh, let me let me. Well, let me let me tell you. Science is a human activity, and it is much governed by personalities, especially when you deal in the big leagues, the really important stuff like finding um, evidence for life on Mars. Um, the types of personalities that, that do that kind of work are not your regular milk toasty kind of scholarly scientists who... Uh, you know, they, they, these guys are used to play in uh, science in the big leagues, by the way, is like pro basketball. Basketball isn't supposed to be a contact sport, but as <laughs> we just got done watching the, uh, the playoffs, uh, in the big leagues, it is very much a contact sport, especially underneath, right underneath the net, uh, when you're about to have a winning, you know, in, late in the game. So, uh, yeah, these guys, uh, there, there are many scientists who've gotten angry with me. <laughs> In fact, I usually regard that that's, that's a sign that I really succeeded if I get a few people angry. Uh, this fellow in particular, he wasn't angry about this contradicting the Bible. He felt it contradicted his own work. And um, just to show you how people can allow things to get the better of them, and, and I'm, no, I'm no exception, uh, he stood up in the middle of my presentation and started shouting that I was wrong because uh, what I had done four months before the big NASA life announcement from the Life Rock, we had found another group of meteorites called CI, carbonaceous chondrites, and we found that the new data from those meteorites on their isotopes indicated they were Martian. And this guy happened to be an expert on them, was convinced they're from the asteroid belt. So it wasn't, I wasn't treading on his religious dogma, just his scientific dogma. Now, I'll, I'll address the religious questions in just a minute, but to show you how confused things can get, he shouted his objection in the middle of my talk, and I said, sir, please sit down, we'll take your questions when we're done. And, then he stood up as soon as there were questions and started firing questions at me. And I kept thinking, that's odd. I was just studying my notes last night, and, you know, he's he's contradicting what's in the literature, and I checked it was his own article. <laughs> so he was actually contradicting his own written article in his objection to me. Wow. So, and so during break, I went up and showed it to him. And this guy is your typical gray-bearded professor. 
and <laughs> he looked at me, muttered some uh, obscenity, and walked away. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, I guess like, you're wrong, and I don't care if I'm contradicting you. You're citing my own article. You're still wrong. And, <laughs> and, and part of it is, is that even though we're all scientists, a lot of these guys do not like the idea of extraterrestrial life. It's disturbing and it's frightening to them. It means they stare out into space at night. The stars may be looking back. The Klingons may be out there. The Romulans. It frightens them. Mm. They'd well, much rather imagine that, ga- that the nearest life is in a galaxy far, far away. It well, does. If you think, if you think they about are still, it. They are still, biologically, they are geocentrics. Yes. If you think so about now, it, it... Now, the other the point you raise, though, people having religious objections, I actually talk about that in my book because I'm very aware. I, came from a fundam- I come from a fundamentalist background, as I discuss in the book. I was a Pentecostal fundamentalist in my late adolescence because my family had decided to become... Uh, you know, Jesus freaks. And uh, you, you can imagine hearing that the world is going to end from the pulpit every Sunday and that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are ready to ride and you get your draft notice. They still had a draft then. I was in the last group that was actually going to be drafted. So I got my draft number. I was 65. I went up for my physical, I'm proud to say. I was declared A1, and I was ready to go. Mm-hmm. By the way, they weren't sending uh, volunteers. You had to volunteer to go to Vietnam. They weren't sending draftees to Vietnam anymore. But I, I figured if the horse, four horsemen of the apocalypse are going to ride, uh, they're going to ride right over me. <laughs> and um, so I became very interested in Bible prophecy and things like that. Now, when you're in that kind of mindset and somebody tells you that they found bacteria on Mars... This is very upsetting because you think that the Earth is the focus of God's plan for the universe, and any kind of science about other planets or stars is just a, that's the devil trying to distract you. I mean, people told me that. Hmm. Here I am studying to be a scientist. My mother, you know, and my, my, my parents decided to become fundamentalists, and but they still encourage me to go to school. And so I'm talking about, I'm learning about all this new science, and yet at church, if I talk about it, I'm saying, oh, you're letting the devil, that's worldliness. So the one of the main reasons that Christ, very fundamentalist Christians are very frightened by discussions of extraterrestrial life, they're frightened of them for the same reasons that even scientists are frightened about it because it is frightening it means we're out here alone in a big universe and we don't know what else is out there we're a little fish in a big ocean a big fish could come swallow us any moment now that is a, that is not an unreasonable fear all you have to do is watch the movie independence day that could easily happen i don't think it's going to happen but it could what happened to Mars could happen to us, but not if we go out and become spacefaring ourselves. However, 
if you are a fundamentalist Christian, as I was, you say, well, there's no mention of extraterrestrial intelligence in the Bible or extraterrestrial life. That's not true. Um, <laughs> I can't, doesn't this contradict the Bible? And if it does, then, then I'm not going to pay any attention to it. But as I show in my book, I actually went through this myself. In the Bible, extraterrestrial life and intelligence is present and, and, and you know, it's strongly indicated. For one thing, when Jesus tells his disciples to go out into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, the word that is translated as world in the King James is the word cosmos. Hmm. It means the universe. It doesn't right. mean just earth. Right. The, the New Testament is written in Greek, which uh, by the time of Jesus... The Greeks had actually figured out the entire solar system. A guy named Aristarchus had figured out that the planets moved around the sun, the Earth was a planet, the Earth was round. They knew that because it cast a round shadow during solar eclipses. Even Aristotle talked about the Earth being round. So the Greeks had actually achieved a very sophisticated uh, level of scientific knowledge. Um... And this is the world that Jesus preached in. Word, the New Testament is written in Greek. 85% of the time when it says, go out into all the world, or God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, or the, world, the whole world was in sin and then Jesus came to redeem us, that word is the Greek word cosmos. And it means the same thing that it meant now. Then same thing back in those days that it means now. It means the whole universe, everything. Mm -hmm. The Greeks had a specific word for the earth. That was G. You know, I mean, geo, where we get the word geology. So they had a word for the Roman Empire. It was called economios, where we get the word economy. So those some are sometimes translated as world. Um, so... The Bible actually talks about life in a cosmic sense. Jesus it speaks of Jesus cosmically. I wrote a book called um, um, Cosmic Jesus. The reason I wrote it was that when I found out about this Mars stuff and convinced myself by the latest data that this scenario I found was true, an entire planet full of people being wiped out by somebody else. At least that's the best interpretation I can make. I started getting really depressed. It was overwhelming to me. Mm -hmm. And I started having nuclear war dreams. I hadn't had those in a long time, not since I was a child. Right. Where, you know, you, you're sitting there in the dream and you're... I was, in the dream, I was... In fact, I recounted in the book that I was in a trailer park camping trailer a camping ground in the desert watching the, the world be destroyed with nuclear weapons and I was there with my children and realizing my children were going to die in front of me and then I woke up and that was after I found this stuff on Mars so I I was overwhelmed by the prospect of that much cosmic evil and you know quite frankly was ready for some medication.
hmm. or depression. And but instead, I decided to uh, meditate on cosmic good. I right. I got back into the Bible and in the Greek, and I wrote the book Cosmic Jesus. Right. Which is really Jesus as a cosmic savior, not just for Earth. So you have. And I, look, I'm just an Episcopalian. Right. They say that's the mildest Christianity in its mildest form. <laughs> there are no suicide bombers who are Episcopalians that we know of. Right. So um, now, in fact, the joke is, is if you ask a Episcopalian what the Episcopalian Church believes about any specific subject, he'll say, uh, well, we've appointed a committee <laughs> to study right. that. And when the committee makes its report, we'll have another committee study the report. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 but I am, I am a Christian. Right. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I'm just an Episcopalian, but I'm a Christian. And so I wrote the book Cosmic Jesus, and I, I make reference to that in this book about death on Mars because it is so terrible. Right, it is. If you think and about it, it, it is so terrible. It, it's bad enough to make you get clinically depressed thinking well, th- about it. Think, think about this. Unless you think that there's somehow a big picture in the cosmos, that there's cosmic good out there as well as cosmic evil, and that, that cosmic good will triumph in the end. Well, don't don't forget we can be part of that triumph. What's that? Don't forget that Jesus said a number of interesting things. He said, um, "In my Father's house there are many mansions." If it were it, right, it, okay. In other words, said, there are other places. If it were not so, I would have told, I would have told you. Told so. you. Yep, that's right. And also, we are also told throughout that in the most ancient of times, that there was war in heaven and earth. Yes, war in the yes we are told that where there, there was war oh, in the heavens. So, We're also told, by the way, a very interesting little verse that most people don't like to talk about, especially if they're fundamentalists, is they, there's this verse that says, Then the sons of God saw that the daughters of earth were very beautiful. That's right. Exactly. And they took of them wives, whomever they wished, and the offspring of these unions were great men about many, many legends are written. Right. So Hercules, uh, Perseus... Jason yeah. of the Argonauts, these right. are all heroes of ancient Greek literature. But don't forget that some of these guys... the offspring of, of right. the gods and human women. Right. And there it is in the Bible. That's right. And these guys, these guys, the Nephilim, they were, they were uh, not just physical giants, they were mental giants. And, and right. that ties into our own prehistory. They were, they were people who shook things up. They were great yeah. heroes. Well, I like to think some of them were great Probably some of them were great villains. Yes, some of them were. And uh, um, so that's <laughs> in the Bible. And and somebody, I asked fundamentalists about this, and they say, well, those are angels of some sort. And I said, ah, but their behavior was hardly angelic. Right, right. Well, you and, know, uh, I, mean, I mean, we're even told that if you look at creation in, in the original Hebrew in, in Genesis, is where it says the earth was without form and void. What it actually says is the earth was tohu wabohu, which means it was in a state of destructive, uh, it was in a destroyed condition, or it was in disarray, destroyed. awaiting renovation. So we're told right there that something else that existed that was destroyed. So I'm, I'm not as much up, up on the Hebrew as I am on yeah. the Greek. 
So that that tells us I learned learned a lot of Greek anyway. So So that tells us though that that it's it's that our story is much older than six thousand years, and it probably goes back to whatever happened on Mars. As near as they can tell, the human race is in in its present form. Scientists will tell you this: two hundred thousand years old. Only six thousand of those years are actually kind of written down. The story of Abraham and, and everything like that right. apparently begins about 6,000 years ago right. uh, in the very foundations of uh, civilization. By the way, those those cities which are now no, that are mentioned in the story of Abraham, mm-hmm. uh, which is where kind of history as we understand it sort of starts that we can recognize, those, those cities, uh, Ur of the Chaldees and Haran, those were completely unknown when the Bible, you know, was first being read. And only later did archaeologists actually confirm, oh, yeah, there is a city. There was a city called Haran, which, you know, times arranged with caravan because it was a caravan city. It was on the right. trade route. And Ur of the Chaldees, that they found that. But the only reason they found it is because they knew to look for it from the Bible. They, they didn't know... Right. Uh, Except through legends uh, passed down to the Romans and the Greeks, they didn't know anything about archaeology. Right. Well, even even now they know for archaeology more than anything else. Even now they know that the site of of Sodom and Gomorrah is basically below and, and along the banks of of the Dead Sea, and it is That's radioactive. Right. It's covered by the Dead Sea. It's radioactive. Yeah. Well, there's it's, another port. There's another place in India. Yeah. Uh, Mahondo Daro. Yeah, Mahondo Daro. Apparently, Darrow. the soil is glassified as if right. by, struck by a nuclear weapon. And right, Harappa is another one. Yeah. What's it? I said Harappa is another site. There are several sites that have radioactive residue and vitrified oh, stone and, remains. Oh, and, and yeah. Daro, and I discuss this in the book, I give it as an example of when you are an archaeologist, and you come on the site of a primordial massacre. You find large numbers of bodies that were unburied, just left in the streets. It affects you. In fact, I said that the first characters we send to Mars have going to have to be maybe ex-special forces or something, people of exceptional mental toughness. Right. Because if they excavate, at, if they start digging around in the rubble at Sidonia and find masses of dead bodies, like you do at Pompeii, right. I have pictures from Pompeii and Mohandodaro of just masses of dead bodies or remains of dead, fossils of dead bodies. And uh, let's see, it was Edward, uh, it was Louis Steve, Robert Louis Stevenson. The last place he visited while he was alive was they just discovered Pompeii and the ruins there, and they also discovered all these bodies preserved in the volcanic ash, and it was devastating to him. He died shortly thereafter. The last entry in his diary is, City of the Dead, City of the Dead. He was so devastated by so much mass death that it, it killed him. It, uh, he, was an, he, was, he was pretty old at the time. I think he was about 70 but it was the psychological effect on him kind of broke his heart, and he uh, he died shortly thereafter. And when we send our astronauts to Mars, 
we are sending them to the site of a, of a massacre, a planetary-scale massacre. And we have to do everything we can to make sure they're kind of psychologically supported. Uh, one of the things I say is that we have to establish a base at Phobos. It'll fly over them every couple hours. And, right. You know, that's, and they'll have emergency supplies there. You know, that'll be the radio link to Earth. It'll um, be of enormous psychological support. We, we, I have a question this about This is not that, like going to the that. moon where we're landing on the moon in full, you know, we can see the Earth there. Uh, the astronauts on the moon could point their antenna right at Earth. The Earth could talk back to them. The Earth was there. When you send people, and, and there was no dead, they weren't standing on the graves of billions of people. Uh, when you go to Mars, you may be standing at the site of a tremendous massacre, and the Earth is nowhere to be found. Um, it's just you out on the, you and your buddies out on the plains of Mars. You're going to have to have a lot of psychological support. Um, and having a the, the Mar the Phobos Moon Phobos is an expert is an excellent place to do our first landing in the Mars system. Mars is a system. It's not must understand Mars is not a planet. It is a system. It's got two moons, and uh, especially Phobos is a ready-made space station. It's the easiest place to land in on the Mars system. And once you establish a base there, then you can do base uh, expeditions to the surface, and you can support uh, the uh, expedition on surface from Phobos, uh, both psychologically and materially, and give them, you know, weather reports and stuff like that. You know, there's a big dust storm coming, something like that. Um, uh, it's just, uh, I think we have to be very careful about the people we send and the condition and and be very supportive of them when they land there because the feeling well, of isolation and of of, of of horror may be right. overwhelming to them well doc dr brandenburg do you think it's possible as as a russian probe seemingly found when it went to look at phobos somebody yeah. may already somebody may already be at phobos and they may not oh, want to share. Oh, we may. Uh, I don't believe we're alone in the universe, and I don't believe we're the only people who develop space travel. Uh, beyond that, I'd really not care to speculate. Uh, yeah. You've seen the video I'm talking uh, I will about, just right? say that, yes, the Russian probe went to investigate Phobos. And I believe the last picture it took was of some large cylindrical object near near it. Yes, and they never published the picture. Right, exactly. I actually <laughs> have seen it, the video. I mean, here's yeah. Aviation Week, or as you, we used to call it in Washington D.C., Aviation Leak. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, they said, "Well, the last picture the Phobos probe took was a big cylindrical thing. We think it was a fuel tank from earlier in the mission." Huh. No, it actually turned toward. That is really lame. A really lame went, explanation yeah. for for something they did, and they they didn't publish the picture. They didn't. Mm -hmm. They just discussed it. This object turned toward them, and then the, then the feed ended. Their transmission ended. Absolutely, uh, the feed the feed ended shortly after. They took some nice pictures of Pope, and uh, beyond that, we got nothing. We, so then we got, see. <laughs> in fact, one one one. There was a joke that was published. 
and it said the last picture taken by Phobos, and it showed this uh, goofy-looking alien with a knife and a fork and a nap, you know, a, a, a napkin tied around his neck. <laughs> If we're going to go to Mars with a, with a major expedition, we had better send some people who have some serious armament and are ready to use it because oh. we may find that we're entering somebody else's contested territory. Well, yeah, uh, we may be told to go back to Earth as soon as we land. <laughs> no, I, I say in the book, I said... After what we've found on Mars, human beings do not go anywhere without arms. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's I right. Mean, you, you, can, you can say, uh, oh, this is a nice, peaceful universe. Look at the stars, how beautiful they are. The Earth looks like a beautiful star from a distance. Right. <laughs> but just turn on the nose. Yep, and uh, you can see what it looks like at close range. And just look, and just look at the at the at the animal life here on Earth that will gladly eat you if it's given a chance. Oh, they, the, the, in Georgia, so, former Soviet Republic of Georgia, you know, they they they, they, they got, had terrible floods, and it they had to let all of their zoo animals loose, and this tiger got loose and killed somebody. <laughs> in yep. fact, he was hiding out in a warehouse. He came into the guy came into the warehouse and was jumped on by this tiger who was hungry, and they ate him. Yeah. They shot it. So it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, terrible. But yeah, you look at Mother Nature, and uh, people say, "Oh, we should all act naturally." And I say, "No, think again." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's what nature well, will my, do to you. My my favorite. <laughs> item in the annals of ludicrous academic science is Jane Goodall going into the jungle. I mean, I appreciate what Jane did, Goodall did, but she was very naive. Like she anybody, sure going someplace for the first time, she was very naive. She went in the jungles to work, to work with the chimps. She had a little tribe of chimps in the jungle that kind of would, she'd hand them bananas and in return they got used to her and got to like her and and uh, and she was very, very nice to them. And um, so her initial reports were, oh, chimpanzees are so much better than human beings. <laughs> They're kind and gentle to each other, and they don't make wars. And, and then one night the full moon was out, and they got raided by another tribe of chimps. And there were dead bodies in the bushes the next morning. Right. It was a terrifying night. Chimps are very powerful, uh, you know, animals, very vicious. And and then she started she started realizing that she could tell the chimps apart and tell them by their appearance. You know, they, they all looked the same to her at first. And then she gradually realized she recognized individuals and then she realized gee individuals are disappearing around here. She right. would find them she would go out and investigate and find them dead stomped to death or chewed to death by another chimp, and she realized the murder rate among chimps was very high. Mm. The method, there was their method of population control. Right. You know, and so she wrote back to her mentors, oh my God, this is like some savage tribe in the jungle. They're killing each other, and then they're raiding each other's tribes, and it's, this is terrible. They're actually brutal, vicious, murderous little creatures just like people and you know what her mentors said 
for people, they said, ah, oh, you can't publish that. Yeah. <laughs> you can't publish that because yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll take away our grant money. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but, but you see, the thing is that, that she was actually at that point, she was really doing something to contribute to science when she started yes, she reporting was. the truth. And she, see, that, she basically discovers that the human race is not an aberration on nature. We are part of nature. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and mm-hmm. so, but I remember, as one person called it, the chimps being used as the noble savage to beat the human race. Why That's can't exactly you be more right. like the chimpanzees? And it was exactly. all a complete farce. In fact, a male, in a fact, male in chimp. Fact, at the beginning, it was just, it was yeah. just, you know, naivete. Right. But by the about three years into it, it was a complete misrepresentation and farce perpetuated by academic science on the human race that the chimps were far more noble and peaceful than human beings when the exact opposite was true. And right. finally, Jane Goodall, to her credit, published a book where she showed it was all, she laid it all out. Good. Well, you and, know. And so, but I, I remember this as a ludicrous, as, in the annals of science, this has to be one of the most ludicrous episodes of that, the, the, oh, the human race is so terrible, why can't we be like the chimps? And they didn't know anything about the chimps. Right. And, and so I, I, uh, <laughs> I tell people, and I actually got booed at one, I, was, I gave a talk at a UFO conference, this was back in the 1990s, and I, I gave a talk and I said, let me tell you something, there are planets throughout this universe with oceans on them, and there are fish in those oceans, and the big fish eat little fish <laughs> in yep. those oceans. And people booed when I talked about <laughs> stuff like this. That's it. It just shows how stupid they wanted the rest of the universe to be better than this place. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen. This may be the best. This may be the best of all possible worlds. Best of all possible <laughs> worlds. Right. <laughs> well, at least this corner of it. That's right. Uh, this United Gen- States. I, yeah. uh, Gen- gentlemen, I'm how terrible. I'm, United States is, and I said, "Well, go someplace else." Then right. there you go. Go to Libya, gentlemen. Gentlemen, I'm going to have to interrupt you here because, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, oh, my Dr. God. Yeah, it went fast today. Hey, so, this uh, great, you guys. Uh, you well, guys Dr. Uh, Dr. Brandenburg, I wanted to give you a chance real quick, though, to uh, uh, tell our audience uh, where they can find your books and, uh, you know, if you have a, a website or anything like that. Uh, yes, I have a website under construction called lifeonmars.pub. You'll excuse the, uh, I'm you know, I'm not a... I'm not a genius at constructing websites, but it's getting it's getting being done. And um, and then there's the book, of course, uh, Death on Mars, that's available through Amazon.com and Adventures Unlimited Press. And um, anyway, uh, it's gotten good reviews, and I've been to conferences and presented the same data, and no one has contradicted me. No one has come. No other scientist has come up to me. Oh, John, you got this all wrong. No. I've been received uh, with stunned silence. Well, fantastic. And other and people I, have privately said, no, we agree with you. So, uh, so uh, I, I tell you, it's, it's, it's been a great honor to have you on our show tonight. Well, thank uh, you very uh, much. And uh, feel yeah. free. I, I, I am writing uh, stuff on unified fields. You may find that interesting, and you can have me back on. Yes, right. yes. So we, we, love need to have gra- we need control gravity and warp drive now. That's yep, what we need. That's right. We also, we also need some really big, 
We need some really big planetary defense weapons, apparently. There you go. Oh, yeah. All right. The best planetary defense is a Starfleet. Right. (laughs) All right, gentlemen, uh, I need to uh, wrap us up here. So, uh, Dr. Brandenburg, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, Mike, a uh, pleasure as always. Yep. So Absolutely. this is uh, this is Tim Swartz. You have been listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Thank you for listening. Our guest tonight is Dr. John Brandenburg. So be sure to tune in this time next week for another fascinating program. So from all of us here, good night. Good night.